I think the hardest part for Christmas for us, if we think about what the season really is about, is that reality that he came for you. And I think that's why it's easy for us to distract ourselves from that reality. I think that's why Satan tries really hard to keep us to focus on things that don't keep our mind focused on the reality and the truth that he did indeed come for you and for me. The last few weeks, we've been looking at the build-up to Christmas. It's called Advent, the waiting. We looked at being prepared through the person of John the Baptist. We looked at being ready through a parable that Jesus told of 10 women not ready and prepared for their big moment. We talked about our expectations last week whenever we we look at the story of Jesus' birth, this coming King, this coming Messiah that shows up in a barn as a baby. Today we're going to look at the waiting. The story of redemption is is a story of, of waiting. And we as people can tend to be pretty bad at waiting, can't we? Is anyone in here really good at waiting? Like, I don't think any of us are really, really good at it, especially if there's something we want. Now, how many in here have been frustrated when you're in line at the express lane and the person in front of you has 20 items because you're in such a rush? If we're in the car together at a red light, the light turns green. I mean like a nanosecond after that light turns green. My foot doesn't even have time to react to coming off of the brake and moving over towards the accelerator before my wife is telling me it's green. (laughs) It was one of the benefits of marriage that I wasn't aware of, that I would have a driving assistant help me tell what color the light was. We're not really good at waiting. When I was a kid, and uh, maybe you can relate to this, did anyone else's parents make them sit on the steps until they told them it was okay to come downstairs? Anyone? Yeah, what's that all about? You had all night to be ready, parents. I remember sitting in my underpants at the top of the steps, like so eager that I didn't even put clothes on with my brother, and we're, we're sitting at the top of the steps, and my parents groggily walked downstairs. And now that I'm a parent, I understand what they were doing. They were making coffee. Maybe they were throwing back other beverages we weren't aware of, but they were preparing themselves for these two kids to come down in eager anticipation for whatever was going to be waiting for them in that living room. We tend to be pretty bad at waiting. The two worst words you can tell a kid, just wait. Because then like a half a second later, like, how about now? But it doesn't really get any better as adults. We just mask it differently, right? We'll just wait. It'll be worth it. Just, just wait. You know, when we look at the story of the Bible, when we look at the story of Jesus told through the lens of Scripture, we see the story of humanity is one filled with moments where God's people, His creation, just couldn't wait. The anticipation of a promise the, the anticipation of a moment, it just, it, it ate them up and they couldn't wait. 
Now, I'm not going to go through all of them, but it starts in the garden whenever they're told, you can't eat off of that tree, just trust me. And they couldn't wait to see whether or not God was actually faithful enough to hold true to what he said. You fast forward to the story of Exodus, and they're in the and, and there's so many moments where the, the story of the Israelite people where they just weren't willing to wait. But one of the classics is that they 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 wanted to have the gods of the Egyptians and the God on the mountain speaking to Moses. They couldn't wait to see what all this is gonna do. They couldn't wait for the promise and they couldn't wait for the promises of the promised land. And so they cast an idol because that was something tangible they could look at. They could see, they could put their hands on it. You can go forward from there and God's people are being led and, and they are sitting under the kingship of God, the high priests, the prophets, the, the, uh, um, the judges. They're set up to rule uh, as, as faces of God here on earth. And as the judges are doing their job at the tail end of that whole experience, the people come to Samuel and they tell him, you're old, ineffective, and we hate your kids. So we want a king. We want a king we can see. You keep pointing us to this God, and yeah, we still believe that he's there, but we don't want him to be our king anymore because we can't look at him, we can't see him. We want a king on a throne. We want the whole thing. Like, we're tired of this, like, theocracy thing where there's this governing thing in the sky that I'm supposed to believe in. And listen, I believe in it, I do. But I just want a king on a throne so I can put a face to it, okay? So, Samuel, this whole, like, judge thing, you're the last one in line. Like, let's just put an end to it now. Or God's people just couldn't wait. I've been thinking about this a lot through Advent because Advent is just waiting. I think we're pretty good at Christmas. I think we're pretty bad at Advent. And that's, isn't that where Satan does most of his work? Especially in the Christmas season, it's, it's the build-up to Christmas. Christmas morning, I don't think we all feel all that stressed. Unless you're hosting like a bazillion relatives at your house for a meal, you might not feel all that much stress on Christmas morning. It's this moment where you just get to reap the benefits of your Advent waiting and planning and prep, right? We tend to be pretty good at Christmas. We tend to be pretty lousy at Advent. And that's whenever it catches up with us. Christmas morning comes and goes and you're cleaning up wrapping paper and you're seeing littered wrappings from toys that look like someone who designed Fort Knox put them in that packaging for some reason. And you're, you're, you're cleaning up all this stuff and watching people enjoy their presence. And then maybe it hits you in that moment. Man, that went fast. I find that the math of waiting, and if you know me well, you know how much I love math. The math of waiting says this, that as the length of time in waiting increases, our belief in the thing we are waiting for decreases. I'll repeat that. As the length of time in, our, in, waiting, in, the, in waiting increases, our belief in the thing we are waiting for decreases. So the longer you tell me I have to wait for something, the less I will believe that it's worth waiting for. Unless it's something super tangible, there are 
dozens, if not hundreds, of examples in Scripture of things that we've been told to just trust God and wait. Satan is a master at his lies and deceptions. One of the things, if you remember, uh, I read from the Screwtape Letters a couple weeks ago. And uh, Screwtape Letters, if you're not aware, is a C.S. Lewis book that he wrote. It's actually, we put it in a book, but it's a collection of satirical letters that he wrote from uh, a fictional uh, demon called Screwtape. And he's writing them to his nephew, Wormwood, who's, a, who's another minion, a demon. And, and they're written from an opposite perspective of what we're used to. They're written from a demon trying to instruct another demon how to derail his patient or the person that he's supposedly assigned to to stop looking like Jesus. He wants this person to, to not exemplify the person of Christ because in this flipped script, Jesus is the enemy. And one of his pieces of advice that he gives him about Christmas is, you can seed the manger so long as you divorce it from the cross and the empty tomb. You can give them the manger. It says in there that these bipeds are obsessed with babies. So let them have their baby at Christmas. As long as they stay focused on a baby. If they can keep their time and attention focused on a baby in a manger and the whole scene of that and the angels and the wise men and all the stuff that we associate with that moment, if we can keep their mind focused on that and divorce it from the reality that the reason that baby was born was to live a life here on earth that could be relatable to us, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, someone who, who walked the pathway of a human being and then lived a perfect life throughout his whole experience and then died an all-atoning sacrifice for our sins on a cruel, rugged cross only to raise himself from the dead three days later to bring us ultimate redemption. He's the Messiah. That's why the angels were excited the morning of his birth. What the demons want to do is keep our minds focused on the baby so that we don't think about the Savior. Now, I bring that up again because Satan is a master at distraction. He's, a, he, he's okay with us thinking about some parts of Jesus. He's okay with us thinking about some parts of church. He would say, listen, seed to them their buildings, seed to them their worship, seed to them their music, seed to them their wants and desires, as long as you divorce it from making disciples. Give them those things and allow them to believe they're doing good things because they congregate at a building under the name of God. Just divorce it from them actually going out into a world and making disciples. Satan would be okay with us gathering for a long time and and not really having any substance to our gatherings. He would be okay with that. To him, it's a win because disciples aren't being made. We can fill buildings with church attenders, but that doesn't mean we've made disciples. So Satan has distracted us with aspects of good things, and that makes the waiting that much harder. It makes the waiting more difficult. I think it's a common human response. This this. this doubting this wavering belief in the thing we're waiting for, the promise that's been made to us, the the doubt that we might feel, the questions that we have. I think it's a common human response. And I see God's graciousness in us asking those questions. There's proof of that. If you want to turn with me to the book of Matthew. 
We're going to be looking at Matthew 11. It's on page 563 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 11. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about John the Baptist. We talked about how his whole life was prep for Jesus. His whole life was to prepare the way of the Lord. And he stood on the banks of the Jordan and he preached and he taught people about this coming Savior and he taught them they could be redeemed and he, he brought them to this realization of who the king was and then all of a sudden one day his cousin Jesus, who he knows is the Savior, the Messiah, the redeemed one, the one he's been working to prepare the way for, the one he's been getting everyone ready to look at, comes around the corner and he says these amazing words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, look, He's right there. And He draws all the attention onto the Messiah. Matthew 11 shows us a moment of humanity in the storyline of John the Baptist. It's one that we don't talk about very often, but I think it's important for us to look at this. In in Matthew 11, look at at verses 2 through 6 with me as I read them. Now, at this point, just so you know, John is in prison because he has, he has uh, infuriated the wrong people with this message of Jesus. Verse 2 of chapter 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is John the Baptist. Spent his whole life preparing the way for Jesus. Now he's in one of his lowest and darkest moments. And he's still waiting. Because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. But his circumstances make it hard to believe that it's true. Because he hasn't seen Jesus actually be the Messiah yet. And he asks this question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you him? Are you the Messiah? I'm in my lowest moment here. I'm hanging on by a thread. Are you the one I spent my whole life pointing people toward? I believe you are. Please just reassure me. You are the Christ. Tell me you are the Messiah. Tell me you are the Redeemer. And this is what Jesus says to him, starting in verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John the Baptist struggled in his waiting. He just wanted to be certain. What's Jesus' answer? Jesus' answer is, Tell them, go tell John what you have seen. And go tell John what you have heard. And here's why he says that. Because Jesus is living out prophecy. There's prophecy being made that the Messiah would have these certain behaviors, that these certain things would happen, that the Messiah would have these powers, that the Messiah would have these authorities, that the Messiah would be able to raise people from the dead. There's prophecy riddled through the Old Testament pointing people to what to look for when the Messiah comes on the scene. And Jesus knows that John knows that prophecy. 
And Jesus knows that John has spent his whole life pointing people to those same signs. John has spent his whole life getting people prepared to know what to look for. And John has told people, when you see a man come on the scene and have this kind of behavior and this kind of stuff is following him, that is the Messiah. He's been prepping people for this for a long time. And now he, in his waiting, is struggling with his belief Jesus is just living out of his character. Jesus is just living out of who his father told him to be. And John's uncertain about that. And you know what? We don't handle well as people who follow and love Jesus. We do not handle uncertainty well. When we interact with people who have a moment or a lapse of faith, we condemn a whole lot faster than we interact with them the way Jesus did in this moment. Because look at what Jesus says. In verse 7, as they went away, so he tells them, go tell John what you have seen and heard. And he tells them a whole list of things that have been happening because prophecy said the Messiah would live and teach this way. And then he looks at the other people, the crowds, and he says this about John, verse 7. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to just... See some kind of weak man standing in the woods? Is that why you traveled out in the woods to hear John the Baptist preach? Is his question. Verse 8, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. He's talking about robes of riches. He's referring to the fact that John the Baptist wore camel skin and ate locusts and never got a haircut. Never went to the barber to get his beard trimmed. He was a mess. Verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Jesus is about to quote prophecy here. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. Verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay, so I want you to see what's happening here. There's followers of Jesus who have left the follower. They were disciples of John. They're following Jesus now. They are followers of Jesus. John still has people that are second-guessing whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Those are his disciples. And he continues to point them to Jesus. And Jesus does not balk at that. And so when, when these disciples of John go and visit him in prison, John is expressing his doubt, like we already talked about. So they go to Jesus and they say, hey, listen, this is what John sent. Jesus says, go back and tell him this. And in that moment, Jesus was a human being. He had an opportunity to pounce on a fellow leader's weakness and steal people from his camp. He could have sealed it right then and there. He could have said, see, you don't follow weak leaders like John. You follow strong leaders like me. When people have doubts, they're not true. They don't have true faith. They don't have enough faith. They don't believe enough. I wouldn't follow John if I were you. That's what Satan wants leaders to do. What's Jesus' response? Before there's ever a second opportunity, a second of opportunity for people to think less of John, Jesus says, time out, before you think any less of this man than when you went out to hear him preach. 
Did you go out to hear him preach because he's weak? When you went out to hear him preach, did you go out to hear him preach because he was dressed so fancy? When you went out to hear him preach, what did you go to hear? I tell you, no man has ever been better on this earth or more a servant to the king than John the Baptist. So Jesus doubles down on John's influence because Jesus knows who he is. See, Jesus is okay with John's questions. Jesus is okay with your questions because Jesus knows who he is. This is important for us to wrestle with at Christmas. This is important for us to understand. So to take this home with you, Jesus does not need your belief in him to be your redeemer and your savior. He doesn't have to have that to know that he is the Messiah. Jesus does not need you or anyone in the world to admit that he is the savior for him to actually be the savior. You just need to know that he's the savior for him to be your savior. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is the one that was sent by God to redeem us from the pit and mess of sin, from the promised eternity in hell, from separation of sin. That is where we were headed. That is where we are headed. So you can doubt Him as the Messiah. That does not change the reality that He is the Messiah. And Jesus knows that, so therefore He doesn't spend any time defending Himself. Even when He's on trial before Pilate, beaten up and accused, He doesn't spend any time defending Himself. Because He knows who He is. He is the Messiah. He is our Savior. Is the faith and the belief and the waiting, that's on us. The redemption, that's Him. That's what He comes to give. That's what He promised to give. And that's what He did. And that's what He's still in the business of doing. Jesus doesn't need to do anything else to prove his worthiness to you than what he has already done. So as followers of Jesus, if you're here today and you are of the redeemed, you have tasted and seen the grace of Jesus, your job is not to sell him to the masses. You cannot make Jesus more beautiful than he already is. You cannot do it. He is already perfect and beautiful. But Jesus makes you more beautiful. Jesus filling you makes you adorned with his presence, a savory thing to a world that desperately needs his grace. So our job is not to be so theologically astute that we can win all the arguments to convince the masses that Jesus is who he says he is. That's not the primary intention of following Jesus. The primary intention of following Jesus is knowing that he is the Messiah, knowing that he redeemed you, knowing that sin was heading us all on a fast track to hell. And he graciously stepped into that mess. As a baby, he does not need to do anything else to prove himself worthy. 
He did it already. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And He did that for you and for me. See, last week we talked about our expectations. And I believe that as we wait, the other part about this is that our expectations grow. And as expectations grow, so does opportunity for disappointment. We talked about that last week, that some of us in this room suffer from heightened expectation disorder. That's what I called it. We build things up so big in our mind that absolutely no actual set of circumstances that make that thing a reality can ever meet our expectations. And that's what happened to the people of God when Jesus comes on the scene. So when Jesus comes as a baby to a teenage unwed mom engaged to a common carpenter, born in a barn in a relatively insignificant town, the collective religious masses were riddled with disbelief and disappointment, or both. This is not what they expected. We want a king on a throne. Remember they said that earlier? That's what they want. Now God knew this would happen. Because in the context of giving us prophecy about a Messiah, the prophet Isaiah says something interesting. Maybe you've heard it before, but let me read it to you. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 and 31, there's a prophecy foretelling the coming Messiah. Prophesying that God's people would be redeemed. Maybe you've heard this before but maybe not in the context of which it was given. In verse 30 and 31 of Isaiah chapter 40, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They shall walk and not faint. This scripture was given to God's people as they were waiting to be redeemed from exile. The scripture was not given to them so that they could win football games or tattoo it on themselves to make themselves feel better. This wasn't given to them so that it could be printed on greeting cards and nice signs we hang in our houses. Not that that's inherently wrong. This scripture was given to them as prophecy because God always comes through with his promises, just not in our time. And God himself is acknowledging the human element that says even young people who are filled with strength and vigor, even they will get weary and tired and faint. Even young men will fall exhausted as they wait for these promises to come. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And that prophecy that He's given to people as they wait to, for a, a hope of, exile, of, of a restoration from an exile... It sets the stage for this other prophecy that he gives over in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, which you've heard 
at Christmas, maybe dozens of times. But in this, it tells us not just of a baby coming or a Messiah coming, but it tells us in the second part of chapter 52 that behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalt- he shall be exalted. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. It goes up that says that he will, he will grow up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He's talking about Jesus. This, this savior that's coming will be common. You, you will not hold him in high esteem. He's not going to show up on the white horse with a Gatling gun ready to take out Rome. That's not who's coming. Not this time. He sends a baby. We're going to talk about this in Christmas Eve service some, but he sent a baby, the most vulnerable form of a human being. The Savior of the universe needed human beings for his sustenance, and he chose to. And he did that because he lived life as a man, a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. He knows what it's like to have pain. He knows what it's like to have suffered loss. He's walked your road. So you serve a Savior that understands you. And after all is said and done, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, Paul reminds the Galatian people who are struggling with some of these same things again. This is post the cross, post resurrection. This is, this, is, this is after the birth of the church in a city called Galatia and people are coming in and telling them, yeah, 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 you believe in Jesus, that's good. But you also have to trust the law. And Paul says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you understand what that means? He said, you might not understand why Jesus came when he did and how he did, but he did it exactly as God intended him to. Exactly when God intended him to. And he was born of a woman, born of a woman on earth under the same law that every other human being has had to live under. He was born of that system. He lived in that system and then he died under that system so that we might have life. If we lose sight of the fact that Jesus came as a baby to live life the way we understand to live it, granted, time was different, then we're just going to see a baby in a manger and a redeemer on the cross and we'll disconnect the fact that he understands how you live. He understands what it's like to live here. He understands what loss and pain and grief feels like. 
And though the waiting is hard, even though it's hard for us to fathom, God's promise hasn't ever changed. Our doubt, our lack of trust, our impatience, our sin, don't nor will they ever change His promise. See, Christmas is a reminder of that beautiful truth. Christmas is a reminder that we need a rescuer. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus was promised to us. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus was given to us. Christmas is a reminder that that God delivers on His promises. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus lived a sinless life here on earth. Christmas is a reminder that He came and He understands and He lived and he He was spit on and He was put to death for our sin, that he lived a spotless, sinless life to be the all-atoning sacrifice. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus fills us. Christmas is a reminder that, that Jesus sends us. And that's what we do while we wait. I'm only 40, but I've realized that life rarely plays out like I expect it to. So I don't know where you're at on the age scale, but no matter how young or old you are, I'm pretty sure you already understand that life rarely, if ever, plays out the way you expected it to. And faith, deepening and deepened faith in Jesus has a posture that isn't disappointed with my expectations not being met. True, redeemed faith in Jesus has a posture that says, no matter how this all plays out, yes, I will trust you. Faith in the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. I think Christmas is beautiful. But if I'm being completely honest, over the past five years, I've enjoyed Advent and the build-up to Christmas more than I've enjoyed Christmas, and I've really enjoyed Christmas. The waiting is not easy. The disappointment, the hurt, the grief, sometimes Christmas is a reminder of all of those things. But our doubt, our questions, our fear, our lack of trust doesn't change the character of God. He doesn't have to do anything else to woo you. And yet, He still does. He woos you with His grace, with His mercy and with His love. You're here today because of that. You're here today because God is wooing you with His grace. You're not here for any other reason. You might think you are, but you're not. You're here because the creator of the universe loves you enough to send his own son like Kurt talked about this morning. To sustain the abuse and the beating and the exile that we all deserved. And 
Christmas reminds us that when God says he's going to redeem those he loves, he does it. Christmas is a reminder that he understands your life, that he understands your story, that he understands your past, that he understands who you are more than anybody. And today just might be the day that you can stop running away from that and make this a Christmas that says, yes, I will trust you. God, thank you for the message of grace and hope that comes along with Christmas. Man, we don't wait well. We don't wait well in any circumstance, whether that's in a a restaurant or uh, at a traffic light or for your promises to be fulfilled that one day you will come back and you will redeem this world and you will take us with you in eternity because now, even now, you are preparing a place for us. So may you find us waiting well. May you you remind us that, yes, we might grow weary and tired, but those who wait on you will renew their strength and they will rise up with wings like eagles. So, Lord, today just might be a day where someone in this room just needs their strength renewed. They've been waiting and they're tired. Today just needs to be a renewal of that strength. And some in this room just need to tap into that redemption for the first time and we get to celebrate alongside them. God, we're a stubborn people. And we resist you at every turn. But I pray that this morning is the morning you break down walls. Because no one understands our stories better than you do. Because you wrote them. May we collectively cry out from the deepest part of us, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will. Yes, I will.